Peter, thank you very much. I am addressing uh, a critically important group of scientists. I say critically important because uh, of the nature of the challenge we're faced with. And I'm actually here just to talk about the global challenge that you are addressing through uh, this workshop and in your own laboratories. So let me just uh, uh, kick off with... The, the nature of the global challenge. It's driven, of course, entirely by population growth. Uh, and the population growth, I very quickly have to say, arises from all of the benefits from science, technology, medicine, social sciences, that meant that many more young children were surviving into maturity and then able to have families themselves. So that rapid population growth is itself a measure of how well the scientific community has delivered into human well-being. But there is a big hangover here in the 21st century from that success, and that is that this population, starting 6 billion this century, likely to end up at nine and a half, ten billion 10 billion by mid-century, uh, um, will itself demand considerably more in the way of resources, including, of course, energy resources. And I think what is interesting is, while we can satisfy ourselves by looking at these curves that show an asymptotic rise in the population and not exponential, um, we need to look at the underlying growth beneath that of the growing middle class. So I'm, I'm highlighting this because these people, the middle class ourselves, those who spend between 10 and $100 a day are the numbers shown on this graph. We're 1 billion in the year 2000. We, in 2013, passed 2 billion. The additional 1 billion being largely in the Asia-Pacific region. There's the challenge because that growing curve extrapolated forward based on economic analyses indicates that it's going to approach 5 billion within 15 years. That's a five-fold increase in middle-class consumers. And I'm using that word consumer because these are the people who are producing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's not the, the people below that $10 a day uh, spending level. So this is the nature of the global challenge that we are here to uh, address. Um, if we look at the, the risk, uh, working within the Foreign Office, I've led a program of work on risk assessment associated with climate change. This is quite different from the IPCC's work, in which in the IPCC you will see a, a real emphasis on median levels of risk. Now, when I was Chief Scientific Advisor, what I had to worry about was outlier risks which had a potentially large impact. Just to give you one example, H5N1 avian flu, which began, if I can use this phrase, to fly around the world um, and, and spread amongst the bird population, was not a human-to-human -human virus. But there was a possibility that it would transmute into a human-to-human -human virus, and human beings had no uh, resistance to H5N1 flu. So... What, what I did as chief scientific advisor was first of all ask biologists, what's the chance of this turning into a human-to-human -human virus? And they came back with figures like 1% over 10 to 20 years. 
very vague numbers, but nevertheless, 1% is that level where you have to start worrying. I then asked the epidemiologist to model what would happen if this occurred anywhere in the world. Within three months, it would be everywhere in the world. We have this wonderful mechanism, aircraft, that carries virus around very effectively. 1% chance of happening 20 years. What was the impact on the British Isles? Uh, the epidemiologists came back and said, within six months of this outbreak beginning somewhere in the world, about half a million to a million Brits would have died. Now, that would have brought the global economy to an end. Uh, and so what, what I had to look at was how could we manage this? I, there's no point in simply telling the Prime Minister this problem. I had to provide a potential solution, and the solution was provided by GSK, uh, who said we can provide a vaccine against the avian version of the H5N1 that will give human beings protection. They will still get the flu, but they will not die in anything like the numbers. Now, that cost the British government a large amount of money. It went through the cabinet almost immediately, as soon as everyone understood the nature of the risk. So in this risk analysis project, what we did that was totally new was use a reinsurance approach. We brought in the reinsurance industry um, and statisticians, uh, and using their approach, it's like this. You are not expecting your house to be burnt down, but you nevertheless take out an insurance policy against that possible risk. And so what, what we did was say to the countries that we engaged with, there were about 120 people in all, all highly placed, were, are represented here, Dan Schrag from the US, uh, Zhou Dadi and Chi Ye from China, Arunaba Ghosh from, from India. So we engaged politicians, political advisors, diplomats, scientists, statisticians, and uh, experts from the uh, insurance industry in this. And what we said to each of these countries was, what's the worst thing climate change can throw at you? And we, we really said, worst thing, that will really damage your, your economic growth. And then we examined the chances of that happening. Now, this is not the IPCC approach. Uh, so, for example, in China, they raised three issues. One was rising sea levels impacting on the people living on the southeast China coast. That's 450 million people that we concluded towards the end of the century would be under risk from flooding on a very regular basis. Uh, we looked at um, the possibility that the temperatures would rise to a level where human beings would be dying in their hundreds of thousands, and you'll see here we looked at northern India, southeast China, and also southeast uh, United States of America. Very uh, similar and rather frightening curves here, because this indicates the systemic nature of the risk here. Um, in other words, when, if the, along the horizontal axis, I'm going to let people please come in, um, along the horizontal axis is temperature rise above the present day. And you'll see that when the temperature rise gets to about 4 degrees, 4.5 degrees centigrade, this curve takes off dramatically. Now, it turns out that people die if they're exposed to temperatures above 40 degrees centigrade at high humidity. Uh, for, for three successive days, death rates go up dramatically. So that's the information that went into these plots. Now, you, you can see that the, the systemic risk there 
is that if this is happening in these areas of the world simultaneously, you are again causing a breakdown in the global economy. But at the same time, climate change is driving sea levels up, and we're seeing the attacks occurring uh, under uh, uh, different conditions. And what the Chinese were particularly worried about was the failure of their rice crop in one particular year. Now, rice is subject to uh, rising temperatures because as the plant reaches the flowering stage, if the temperature is above about 34, 35 degrees centigrade, again for two days, three days, it doesn't produce the product. Right, so even though the plant may continue to grow. And we use that piece of information to produce these curves. Now what is really more frightening about these curves is that you see that the risk of, of rice crop failure rising above the 1% per annum level becomes really serious as the temperature begins to rise even half a degree above the present, uh, present level. Now at the same time, rising sea levels are causing problems in the world's biggest single series of rice paddy fields around the Mekong Delta in Vietnam. Uh, wide, uh, Mekong Delta, extraordinarily difficult to defend against rising sea levels and storms at sea, which will salinate those paddy fields and mean that they can no longer be used for growing rice. So, so what we can see from this is that each of these attacks added up to a systemic conclusion which was that around 2070 or before, on a business-as-usual scenario, the global economy would have collapsed for, for all of these reasons. So I, I, I won't dwell any further on this, except then the question becomes, what, what is the probability of the temperatures rising to the sorts of levels that we've seen there under the different scenarios set out by the IPCC? So here, again, I want to emphasize the, the above 1% level of risk. And you'll see that as we get to mid-century on the business as usual, which is the red scenario, we're already getting above 1% uh, uh, risk of exceeding that 4 degrees centigrade, above which we, we have seen the, the number of fatalities rising, for example. And even on the, the, the scenarios which are no, not actually reachable under the present uh, internationally, uh, sorry, inten intended nationally determined contributions produced for the COP process, which would be somewhere between the yellow and the red curves, we're still heading towards a significant probability of, of reaching the, these uh, uh, four degrees, more than four degree temperature rise. Uh, and, of course, as we move through the century, these probabilities become really much higher. The curve we would all like to be on is that dark blue curve, which uh, keeps us below the one degree centigrade at least this century. That curve corresponds to the best possible human behavior at this point. That's the curve that would be less than two degrees centigrade temperature rise. Now, my own view in conclusion from this analysis, and all of us involved came to this conclusion, is that whatever the cost, we need to aim to be on that dark blue curve. The risk otherwise to our civilization really becomes too severe. And I think that's the, the, the strength of this meeting, because you are a group that are actually addressing this problem.
you will nowhere see in the IPCC report any reference to a temperature rise above 4 degrees centigrade. But if we now look at the probability of exceeding 7 degrees centigrade just on the business-as-usual scenario, you'll see that that probability goes up to very high levels. It is true it doesn't go up to those high levels until the next century. But nevertheless, I think we just need to recall that IPCC focuses on the most likely outcome, not on what is the most damaging potential outcome. Uh, the risk analysis, let me stress, is not saying this is going to happen. This is simply an analysis based on what might happen uh, and therefore indicates the sort of insurance levels we need, actions we need to be taking now. So climate risk is a looming catastrophe to be avoided and there are co-benefits and I have to just set out these co-benefits from managing the decarbonization of the global economy, energy security, health, and prosperity. I'm, I'm going to be suggesting that all of these co-benefits flow from decarbonizing our society. And we need to continually battle with this because, frankly, we're not going to take the rest of the world with us unless we collect these co-benefits together. Anyone who's been into Beijing, Shanghai, Delhi, recently will know what the challenges are of C2.5 particulate matter in the air, largely from coal-fired uh, burning. And so what, what we need to do is just stress these co-benefits. Prosperity I've got there because I believe you're going to roll out cheap energy storage. That's what uh, the, the pressure I'm putting on this particular group. Now, <clears throat> this is the, in red, the International Energy Agency projection forward on billions of tons of carbon dioxide, sorry, of greenhouse gas carbon dioxide equivalent emitted up to the year 2035 in red, and then in green, the curve that we need to be on. <clears throat> and of course, if we delay getting onto that green curve, the curve becomes much steeper to achieve the same overall integrated objective. So what, what we need to do is move as quickly as possible down the path. And how do we achieve that pathway? Now, let, let me say that I do not believe that we're going to be able to persuade the Indian government that carbon capture and storage is a smart way to capture carbon dioxide from the top end of their coal-fired power stations precisely because it would take at least one-fifth of their energy from each power station to run the capture and storage process. And that would be like switching off one-fifth uh, of their power uh, uh, production onto the electricity grid. Their emphasis is on getting electricity to all of the people who have no electricity at the moment and rolling it out across India. And almost at whatever cost, if we look at uh, health conditions. We therefore need to be aiming to produce renewable energy with energy storage and smart grids cheaper than fossil fuels to win this battle globally. Um, this curve is both depressing and complicated, so I'm going to be rather quick on this. Um, what, what, what it indicates is uh, that in terms of carbon budgets, if, uh, if we look at the 2030 point, 
uh, under the INDCs that have so far been declared, we will already have virtually used up the carbon budget to be sure of staying below 2 degrees centigrade. We will have to work very quickly between now and 2030 to see that every country stays below their INDC as, uh, as declared at the COP in Paris this week. That's a critically important point to make. The EU energy policy 2030 targets, 40% uh, reduction at least, we're trying to put that, it was the, the governments represented here that pushed that at least across the, um, the countries on the eastern side of the European Union. Um, we, we want to see that that uh, is at least met. Uh, more than 27% renewable energy must be installed by, by then, and then we have a rather vaguer commitment about energy savings. All of these critically important. EU energy investment needs, I think you've probably already dwelt on these figures, to, to, uh, totaling 1 trillion euro, of which renewable energy generation is 350 billion euro. What, what we're pointing out here is that there is a vast potential industry for wealth creation arising out of the discoveries that reach the marketplace in this, this whole area. Uh, transmission and distribution is a, is a big part of that as well. And so outside this community, the next most important is in smart grids, and, uh, and the distribution technologies that really need to emerge into the marketplace in a short period of time. Now here's where I just want to stress the point I began with. Where is the biggest energy consumption, new energy consumption occurring as we move forward in time? Now first of all, it is not the OECD countries. It is the Asia-Pacific region in particular, that rapid-rising middle class, that is creating most of the new energy demand, followed through by the new developments around Middle East, Africa, etc. There's, what I want to stress, an enormous market there. We're talking about a market that's amounting to four to six trillion dollars a year that is out there for the products that, uh, that we're now discussing in these meetings. Right, this energy storage working group, second meeting, this is really just to go through what I think you've already been looking at at the first working group meeting. You want to accelerate innovation and deployment of energy storage technologies into the marketplace to facilitate the development of policy mechanisms and market structures to see that we get commercial utilization and to support the European community, national governments, innovation agencies and industry towards EU leadership on the international scene in commercial employment and deployment. Here's, of course, the, the story that we know from primary energy installation largely driven by feed-in tariffs across the three countries represented in this, uh, in this working group. Feed-in tariffs began in Germany in 1989 and have been picked up by other European countries one after the other. And what that has done is create, if you like, an artificial market for photovoltaics and for wind turbines. 
And the creation of that artificial market was an important step because what you're battling against is mature carbon-based industries. And in order to battle against that, you need subsidies of one form or another to begin to create a demand on a scale that pulls price down. Now, this is, of course, a wonderful learning curve. None of us would have predicted quite the drama represented by this log-log plot. So I'm just plotting the cumulative capacity driven largely by the European Union actions uh, as a function of the price of installing a watt of electricity. That is a curve that isn't quite mirrored by wind turbines, but nevertheless, since 2009, the cost of installing wind turbine power has come down 29%. Since 2008, the cost of installing photovoltaics has come down 80%. So wind turbines, the learning curve is not as rapid yet, but it is still coming down. The British government is focusing heavily on offshore wind, and we are, we are still effectively subsidizing offshore wind, but costs are coming down year on year on offshore wind, and the potential advantages there globally are enormous. Well, here's, here's the question that everyone sitting around these tables here fully understands. Do we need radical technology and innovation to reduce the cost of supply? Yes, but we need to target our innovation support, which is precisely why this workshop was set up. Let's just take a look at the, the pillars and foundations of clean energy production. And, and I'm, I'm saying clean energy production. We, of course, need to focus on electricity onto the grid, but also on other forms of energy, particularly heat energy, as we move forward in time. These are the... Uh, uh, the pillars, nuclear, carbon capture and storage and renewables, and then we've got the foundations which cut right across these, storage, transmission and energy efficiency. Now, my own choice for preference for action is shown in white here. We need much more work on renewables. We're still using silicon photovoltaics. I believe we'll see plastic photovoltaics coming in, considerably pulling down the cost curve even further. Uh, we need considerably more work on storage, and I have to say, if I pick out the areas in white and put one in red, it would be storage. I think you are working in the single most important area that is potentially a blocker towards the amount of renewable energy each country can put onto the grid. The objective in the research should be stated in a mission-oriented way, which is we need to get to the point within 10 years where it's cheaper to use the combination shown in white, renewables, storage, smart grids, to produce electricity in all countries of the world cheaper than with fossil fuels. If we can achieve that objective, and only if we achieve that objective, we can manage this problem in a relatively short time scale. We have a potential for rollout in demand because at least these INDCs indicate that most countries in the world are shifting towards the, the renewable objective, which means that the market is, is rapidly going to grow. 
as a result of the Paris meeting. And growth in the market will produce a, a, a learning curve that will pull price down and it will accelerate the growth of the market as we move forward in time. I think that stressing the co-benefits becomes a critical pathway in persuading governments to go down that route. Just let me quickly say, I do recognize, because I get this discussion with every country I visit, I've visited over 70, uh, made over 70 official country visits in the last two and a half years. And the countries which have a large amount of coal are worried about coal miners losing their jobs. Now what, what we need is to be addressing all of these issues and creating jobs in the new areas of, of energy production and retraining people into these is part of the critical pathway going forward. Now, of course, this is a multi-vector, multi-scalar scope. Energy storage is not going to lead to a single solution. There's going to be a whole variety of solutions emerging into the marketplace. And those solutions cover everything from kilowatt hours up to uh, gigawatt hours and tens of gigawatt hours of, of storage. But let me emphasize the one point here, the cost target. I believe the cost target needs to be down there at less than $100 a kilowatt hour if we are going to see these really reach into this vast new marketplace um, that is, uh, is waiting to be transitioned. Support from the G7 heads of government uh, they, they met uh, on June the 8th this year. This is a quote directly from the communique. They committed themselves to decarbonize the global economy over the course of this century. An important statement, let me just uh, qualify that statement. We need by 2060 to be carbon dioxide neutral. So as we move forward in time, we will really need to see that we create more sinks, reforestation, and we shift completely away from using fossil fuels earlier than the end of this century. But the second part addresses the issue of this workshop. We will work together and with other interested countries to raise the overall coordination and transparency of clean energy research, development and demonstration, highlighting the importance of renewable energy and other low-carbon technologies. I think that is the G7 giving support and asking their energy ministers to come back next year and say how they will raise the, raise the game going forward in time. Um, I just want to say that it is highly likely that we will see a statement following this up at that meeting here in Paris uh, in 11 days' time, beginning in 11 days' time. I think we will, we will find that the, uh, a good number of nations are keen to collaborate on a mission-oriented program of research, development, and demonstration in this area that will very significantly raise the amount of public investment in RD&D in this area in many countries. Now, this isn't committing any one country to, to raising that uh, level of public investment. President Obama has already called on doubling of research uh, and development public funding in this area, with private funding coming in the slipstream. Bill Gates leading a team of uh, private 
sector people coming in to say, as the research begins to get promising, we'll pick it up and invest in it and see that it gets into the marketplace. So there is a big thrust of international activity behind this. Now, I, I feel just to, in, in finishing that uh, I'm going to show a few pictures, but I know I'm going to sit down and listen to you people telling me what is now in the pipeline. I rather like uh, Professor Heindel's idea. I don't know if anyone knows more about this, uh, of uh, carving a, a cylinder of granite out of a flat piece of land uh, and then up pumping that cylinder instead of up pumping water into a reservoir, just using the mass of the cylinder to store energy uh, and then using that mass to drive water through turbines. That, uh, Professor Heindel is, uh, knows quite a bit about mining and he believes that that is going to meet that less than $100 a kilowatt hour challenge. Of course, we have to see what happens in practice. And this then brings up the question of demonstrators. How, how do we get to the point at which we've persuaded people that funding demonstrators is worthwhile? Uh, this measures something like 150 meters in diameter, uh, 200 meters deep. It's not a very large storage system, and it stores about a gigawatt hour of electricity. That's, uh, it looks like a practical solution, but of course all of us know the things that look like practical solutions don't always end up that way. And then I just leave you with the uh, heat engine idea that is being developed in, in the U UK and I'm sure in other parts of the world as well. There are many different ways of storing energy, not only lithium-ion batteries. And when I say not only lithium-ion batteries, let me very quickly stress, there is a considerable, a considerable amount of very good research going on in lithium-ion batteries. There's an enormous amount of headroom to play for in improving batteries, and just normal electrochemical cell batteries. So all of these areas need more work. I hope you can see that I feel uh, that uh, the world is waiting for you guys to produce tremendous results. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about them. Thank you.